Hi, everybody. I am so glad that I get to bring you this episode today. Any of you who know me or have listened to the podcast know that the neurobiology of what happens to your brain during grief is one that I find completely fascinating and know a lot about from my own trauma training. When I discovered Dr. Lisa Shulman had written her own book, both from a neurologist perspective, but also as a widow, having lost her husband to cancer, I nearly lost my mind. The book does not disappoint. This conversation is extraordinary. I'm really glad you're here. Let's get started. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. Thank you so much for being here at the podcast today. I'm here with Dr. Lisa Shulman. She's a neurologist specializing in Parkinson's disease, movement, and memory disorders. Dr. Shulman's major research interest is in the impact of chronic conditions such as Parkinson's on the function and quality of life. Related interests include brain effects, emotional trauma, cognitive behavioral disorders, health disparities, exercise, biosensors, outcome measurement, and data visualization. She served as the principal investigator on numerous studies, including developing measures of self-efficacy for managing chronic conditions and studying the effects of cognitive impairment on the validity of questionnaires. Dr. Shulman is the author or editor on over 200 books, chapters, and publications. She's the editor-in-chief of 14 Brain and Life Patient Books, co-author of Parkinson's Disease, A Complete Guide for Patients and Families, and author of Before and After Loss, A Neurologist's Perspective on Loss, Grief, and Our Brain. Dr. Shulman, thank you so much for being here. The last title is the one that made me reach out to you not so very long ago. And I am just so delighted that you're here to discuss with your expertise, what your own experience with loss has been. It's totally my pleasure to be here. I was reading your bio and I left out all of the fancy credentials and awards and things, but you are very well respected in your field of study and have this element of becoming an expert in grief and loss. So can you tell us about how that came about and what drove that? I know from reading the book, but you can, you can let our listeners know. I really have come to see my interest in grief and loss and our ability to heal after emotional trauma. I've really come to see it as really a piece with what I was doing all along Mm. Uh, because my interest all along was an adjustment to chronic conditions, mm-hmm. chronic neurologic conditions in my case. When it, when it comes right down to it, one can view grief and loss as a chronic condition. Yeah. And, and, and why is it any different than any other chronic condition? Okay. And when you know everything that I've always been interested in, in terms of, well, how are we going to help people adjust to a new diagnosis, a difficult prognosis, new dust, new disability. Now, you know, it all transferred really over to the world of emotional trauma. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, you know, I, I I would have never had that uh, epiphany. (laughs) Uh, 
But, you know, unfortunately, like so many of us, since loss is universal, I sadly lost my husband. Now it's been eight years. He died at, in his, he was 67. So, you know, it was earlier than one would expect, certainly uh, from cancer. And, uh, you know, the fact was that, uh, you know, you're so busy assisting somebody you love in the midst of an illness that when it, you know, when I'd give myself even a glimpse of a moment to think about what was going to happen in the future, of course, I started to understand that he was not going to survive. But I just sort of had a general thought about that. I'd figure out how to get back on my feet because as a neurologist caring for people with serious conditions, I had been counseling people for, you know, decades on how to adjust to losses. So I thought, well, I'll figure that out, but that couldn't have been any further from the (laughs) truth because when I was actually thrown into that situation, as I say in my book, I felt like I literally was waking up into an alien world and that I I didn't understand uh, one iota about the disruption of identity that this was going to cause and how it was going to just completely upend one's life and, and, and make me feel like I lost my bearings. There were so many parts of this for a long time that I really didn't understand. Frankly, I didn't find conventional approaches or discussions or writings about this to be helpful to me. And so at just at some point I got the the notion from a a wise person to maybe delve into the neurology of loss. Yeah. And, you know, well, I'm a, I'm an academician. So I thought that makes sense. And so I started to do my own research in the field. And, you know, the fact is that there's a huge body of literature out there that even as a neurologist or having gone through uh, medical school and before that, I, actually went to nursing school. So I've been going to trainings of all sorts for years, but you know, there really hadn't been any attention, at least in my training to this body of literature. Yeah. And what does it have to do? It has to do with, well, how, how is our brain affected? How is our mind, our brain and our body affected by substantial emotional trauma of any type. Right. That's right. And so that is really where I was my launching pad to start to feel like I had a direction to get on a path and, and figure this out. Well, and honestly, when I got to chapter eight in your book, which really does start to dig into, Hey, want to know what's going on with your brain when this is going on? What I said to you off mic was that I have been sort of similar studying in the world of psychology and trauma since, since I experienced my own trauma as a child and what I know as a therapist who primarily sees clients in my office is that I am saying the same thing over and over again to people about loss, which is it's pretty standard run of the mill experience to have disrupted sleep. Most people have sequential memory breaks because their brain wasn't coding information. There's just a whole host of things where people come in and say, I feel crazy, or this must be something wrong with me. 
and the greater education of grief and loss work in all the books that I've read don't do a great job of explaining that's because you're a human being with a brain and brains respond to trauma in a specific sort of way, whether it's trauma from being in a car accident or or being mugged or trauma from attachment loss. But I do also think your book does a beautiful job of trying to pull a little bit the specifics of grief away from what maybe we would diagnose as depression or pull some of the specifics away from trauma that is a traumatic event versus trauma as you talk about it, which is about attachment. It's a, because that beautiful description of feeling sort of lost and identity crisis really is specific to the attachment, which I think is how you're really helping inform the grief and loss world. They're talking about something that they believed they needed to have to live the kind of life that they currently live being lost. Well, you know, I think, you know, popular culture really accentuates the differences between different types of emotional trauma. You know, you, you rarely see a piece that instead of just talking about bereavement and grief is talking in a more general way about other types of emotional trauma. Let's say right now we find ourselves with many, there's many um, pieces in the lay press about anxiety uh, and loss having to do with COVID, the pandemic. Right. And I'm not talking about death. I'm just talking yeah. about living through this time, the trauma of, of COVID. So the fact is that that, I think, is the kind of way that conventional wisdom approaches this, that these are separate problems. And I think I want to weave together a few themes here. I find from speaking to groups of people who have experienced loss that, you know, although loss is very isolating. Not only is it oftentimes something that leaves you physically isolated, but certainly emotionally isolated, even when people oftentimes are trying to uh, support you. After all, nobody else really understands what what you are experiencing because it's such a personal loss. So it is very isolating. But what I was frankly astonished to find in speaking to groups is that the experiences are incredibly similar. Even though when we are in our home at the worst and most difficult moments, feeling like maybe nobody has ever experienced this. Nobody has ever behaved in the ways I'm behaving during this period of time. But when you actually get people together, you find out, well, actually... Yeah, (laughs) all these people are having the same experience, sometimes literally identical when they describe their uh, moments. So then, you know, that really connects to the issue of brain function, because as you were saying, the brain is hardwired to respond to traumatic loss in certain ways. And as we can discuss further, Incredibly, this really harkens back to our evolutionary roots. In other words, mammals have a very similar kind of a response to a threat in their environment to the way we are hardwired to respond. And we, we don't have autonomy to change that. Yeah. That is simply right. the way we are hardwired to respond. Yep. The 
the other part that is so important to realize, getting back to this notion about whether grief is fundamentally different than another form of emotional trauma, is that the brain doesn't have any discrete area to deal with one type of trauma or another. The brain, I, I oftentimes say, is agnostic <laughs> to the form of trauma. It, does, it, it has no way to really discriminate. There's only one system in our brain to respond, the primitive limbic system with the amygdala, a very important region in the limbic system that we'll talk about. But whether you're talking about being on a hike and encountering a bear, or whether you're talking about experiencing a tragic loss of a person you love, amazingly, from the brain's point of view, those are both similar threats. Yep. Which even just hearing you say that out loud is validating, right? Because that when people come into my office and, and I consider what I consider the work that I'm doing right now is sort of trying to be a primary grief educator. So taking some of the things that a person comes into my office and says, Megan, I need to tell you this terrible thing is happening since my husband died, since my mom died. I haven't slept. I'm not eating. I'm having these vivid dreams. I can't remember normal steps to work that I've done, you know, for six years. The, this sort of like, listen, that's run of the mill grief. Let's, let me, let me run you through the different regions in your brain that are impacted and why this is happening. You mentioned a minute ago, for some people, that's great. And for other people, they just need to be normalized. Yep. That's completely normal. That's just a hundred percent normal. That's what happens. People don't talk about it that much, but just because we don't talk about it doesn't mean it's not a standard component to grief. Now, obviously not everyone if I say this is what happens, it's not going to be true for everyone, but it's so important to talk about it out loud because it's much more true than anyone has been talking about it. And I think there's, you know, a whole host of things that we do behind closed doors and therapy offices that don't need to be done behind closed doors and are actually a disservice. And as I said to you, I was so excited to find this chapter in your book, because I don't know whether we think people aren't smart enough to take in the science or we just think they don't need to know it. But my experience has been that, that the majority of people who I talk to about this feel very validated and relieved to discover that there is this whole process that happens in their body that is as strong and acute as if they had been chased by a bear. Because I think what the world wants is, you know, I'm so sorry you experienced this loss and I expect you to sort of in the next six or eight weeks, come back to normal. And what you and I know is you will carry that loss for the rest of your life. The, the metaphor that I use is it's like having a baby. You're never not a parent after you have a child, no matter what that relationship looks like, you are carrying that role with you forever. And with real primary attachment loss, you carry with it through time. feels different over time, but it's yours to carry. Well, the experience of emotional trauma, serious emotional trauma of all the unfortunate common types of it, whether you're talking about the loss of a loved one or a new diagnosis or new injury in yourself or a loved one or losing your job, financial instability, all of these things uh, are sources of enduring trauma. 
They are in things that simply, you know, you know, like that proverbial bear, hopefully the bear goes away and, right. and things go back to normal. But instead, these are things that are going to, as you say, generally be with you forever. I very much endorse that this is something that we need to learn to manage over the course of our lives. One aspect that you touched on, and I want to, again, raise the issue of how this connects with other work that I've yeah. done in research, yes. because Excellent. I've been very interested in self-efficacy for managing medical conditions, for mm -hmm. chronic conditions. And what that means is that the confidence uh, that one develops in being able to manage their problem, their chronic condition, and their ability to restore a sense of control in their lives. Yeah. And here you can see, I think, very easily how this links to what we're talking about today. So when we talk about that people may, this, this kind of approach to talking about the effect of trauma on brain function and the body may be more natural to some people than others. But, you know, when I'm seeing my patients, I strongly believe that the patients who accept and commit themselves to understanding more about their illness and how to manage their life with this illness are going to have better outcomes over time yeah. than those who do not. So when I was very early in my career, I sort of like didn't have the, the courage of my convictions. And so when people would say, I, I, don't, I don't really want to be involved in making any so-called shared decision-making. That's what we call it today. I don't want to be involved in this. Just tell me what to do. You know, early on, I would say, well, okay, here's the recommendation. And then at some point I switched and went, well, you know, that's not going to do you any good yeah. because I, I'm not with you when you go home. And, you, and, and when you have a chronic condition, and again, I'm making the analogy that traumatic loss is a chronic condition, then you have to understand enough about what you're dealing with to manage it yourself mm -hmm. and to come up with your own solutions. You can't come to the emergency department every time that there's a, a, a new problem and a new challenge. So I, I strongly believe that uh, in the whole notion that the individuals who will embrace the idea of learning more about how traumatic loss affects our mind, brain, and body are going to have better outcomes. Yeah. I love that. You know, from my, from my work in my office, one thing that I sort of ground myself in every morning before I open the door to work with folks is the notion that my job is to sort of be like a hope merchant to provide the belief that what they currently feel is impossible for them to manage, that they kind of already are, already have the innate wisdom, they just need the experience of finding their way forward. And that to instill sort of, you know, to hold in my, in my center, the confidence while they're building it for themselves. Because what happens is, people come in and say, I can't live through the loss of my child. And anyone who even intellectually thinks about that, that's the first response is a, a mother will say, a father will say, oh my God, I, I would never survive that. And yet most people do. 
percentage-wise, data-wise, people do. It's, it's whether or not the trauma then becomes the limiting life belief and all things stop at that intersection, or we live life forward carrying this untenable loss and still have a life on the other side. And I really believe that humans already are wired to grieve and recover a sense of themselves after loss, but they might need a lot of support that they don't already know. There might be treatments or there might be support or there might be things that they never needed before innately. You know, I was a little bit of a writer when I was in high school, but it wasn't a big part of my life, but I don't know what I would have done without writing after the loss of my mom. It became the way that I managed the narrative so that now I can say out loud, my mother died in, my, in her sleep because for many months, I couldn't even get the words out. My mother died without it just doing that central nervous system overload of, you know, re-traumatizing me in the experience of just re-feeling the loss. But what I think of, and I just love how you described it is, you know, people do need to learn how to live with loss. You talked about that you believe that we were we have the capacity uh, within us to, to live through this and function ultimately. So, you know, I'm going to use this segue to talk about how the brain actually uh, manages traumatic events, emotional trauma. And the fact is that the, our, our brains are developed with the highest priority, highest priority from the perspective of the brain is protecting our survival. Mm. That is what the brain has been developed to do, to protect our survival. And so from the standpoint of emotional trauma, and I, it took me a while to actually understand or think about, imagine how emotional trauma could be what I would usually envision as threat to survival. Mm. Uh, let me just talk about different types of emotional trauma here. They, they are perceived as a threat to our survival because our function depends upon a um, intact identity and purposefulness and ability to function day in and day out. In other words, if we, if we didn't have a brain that had figured out how to defend us against emotional trauma, when these things would happen, when we would be confronted by catastrophe, mm -hmm. we would become completely overwhelmed. Right. We wouldn't right. be able to respond. We wouldn't be able to care for a loved one. We wouldn't be able to respond if we were tragically in an accident and had to save somebody else. We would be just, we'd be paralyzed. No, we, we have resources within us that we don't understand because the brain is hardwired to get us through that and keep us functional, but at a cost. Yeah. The yeah. cost is that it strengthens over time the primitive survival modes of the limbic system of the amygdala, and it weakens the coherent logic and analysis and judgment involved in our Cerebral cortex, the part of the brain everybody thinks about when they think about brains, the part with all the 
gyrations. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it, that's the cerebral cortex, and that's with the seat of logic. Well, the experience of trauma weakens the connections between that coherent logic and the primitive survival mode. Yep. And yep. that is reinforced over time, step by step, because as you said, in our daily lives, we are continuously being exposed to various triggers that remind us of loss. And so this is a continual, not just a cycle, but something that continues to gradually step by step increase the strength of those primitive reflexes and diminish the strength of the, the coherent logical brain. This results in a disconnect between the emotional parts and components of memory and the cognitive memories. Mm -hmm. It actually is, ends up being disconnected. So that as an example, if a person who has experienced, for example, a loss of a loved one walks into a place, whether it's a restaurant or some sort of a event hall that they went to many times with the loved one, they might find themselves being overwhelmed by a feeling of anxiety and feeling like I have got to get out of here yeah, uh, yeah. and not even know why. It's the amygdala, which I know you know the writer and scientist, Dr. Vanderkolk, what he called the, the smoke alarm. The smoke alarm goes off, yeah. but it's poorly connected to the, the cortical memories anymore. And so you find yourself in a sweat, your heart's racing, and you don't even know why. Yeah. So yeah. That, that is a place that many of us find ourselves in. And what I learned for myself and what others see also is that by understanding that it gives you motivation to figure out what kinds of interventions can I pursue that are going to reconnect, reconnect Absolutely. the memory centers to that smoke alarm, to the amygdala. And that is one of the key reasons why various interventions like journaling, meditation, and so forth work. That's how they work. They work because the actual neural connections have withered and you need to strengthen them. Mm. So tell me if this is right, because I'm, I'm really listening attentively and you are describing it slightly differently than I've understood it before. So it sounds like what you're saying is that instinctive part of your brain, which is sort of at the base where the amygdala is, its response to the trauma disconnects it from the front of your brain where you're doing all your critical thinking and that you may experience that disconnection in this triggered format. You don't have a concrete memory of something terrible happening when you walk into this restaurant that you've been to with your partner, but your body has a five senses reaction, a big trigger. I got to get out of here without really any connection to the logic around it. It just responds at an 11 to something that it doesn't even really have any concrete thought about. It's more, it's more the five senses triggering experience. 
Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, the brain is developed to be brilliant because, you know, when we are facing a threat, the amygdala is going to trigger a massive reaction of fight, flight, or freeze. And it's going to get us hightailing it out of that danger before our cerebral cortex even knows that anything has happened. It happens so instantaneously that it completely, that you're unaware until after the event. Of course, that's moments later, you know, that you're unaware that why, why it is that you, you, you're suddenly animated to run or whatever it is to flee. So the fact is when you're in this more chronic mode of stress, the neurons in the amygdala, in the limbic system, literally become enriched and become like very, very strengthened. The neural connections become strengthened. And you can see that in animal models who are put through stress conditions. And at the same time, the areas of the brain involved in memory and in coherent thought, the cerebral cortex, the hippocampus, you can see those neurons getting kind of inter over time. They're not, they're not, you don't lose them, but their connections are withered. This could explain, you know, one of the things my mom would do a lot right after my dad died is she would say to me, did that happen before or after we went to wherever? And and I'm, I, I should have said, I'm very famous for having a very good memory. My memory is my tool. And I was present for all the things that she was describing. And I, I have all these ways that my brain locks on the fact that it was a Friday or that it was raining or, and I don't have to do that. I don't have to create the memories. They're just there. But when we talked about the months of my father dying, she would look at me and say, did that happen before we went to the grocery store or after? And I would have no idea. And the two of us then would sit down and figure it out with our notes or, and we'd write it down and then we'd still have no idea, no memory. So I think part of what you're describing is that acute sense of stress. So my dad having cancer and dying causes the disconnect from the part of my brain that would normally code those memories well. And so they're not there. They haven't formulated in that same way. So when I was like, wow, I feel kind of crazy. Actually, it's because I was under a very specific kind of stress that was causing my brain to to function differently than I normally experience it functioning. Is that right? There are two mechanisms there. One that we just talked about in terms of the connections being poor. The other, there's two or three things going on. The other is memory consolidation. Uh, Memory consolidation, which occurs while we sleep. And some of the sleep disturbances involved in after emotional trauma are evidence of the inadequate or the, the difficulties of consolidating traumatic memories. Yeah. You know, people make the, um, analogy that what REM sleep when we dream is all about is that our recent memories are being filed away in a file cabinet of memories and associated and linked to other memories. But that after traumatic loss, traumatic memories, it's very difficult to consolidate them. Yeah. Because they are they are, they don't link with previous experience, and you, we don't understand them. They're very unprocessed, and they just sit there, roiling around. 
Another, and they just sort of, they have to be surfaced. That's part of why, again, interventions restore some of our memory traces of difficult events is very important. In your case, in that example you told, you and your mom might have to go over it several times until you could restore it and put it into its proper file, if you will, in your memory banks. The third thing I want to highlight is an important psychological defense mechanism, which is very common to emotional trauma, and that is dissociation. And dissociation is detachment from the environment. So that again, the the limbic system of the brain and the brain itself is incredibly clever about detecting a threshold of traumatic memory that would be overwhelming, that would be a threat. Yeah. And therefore, your brain is involuntarily disconnecting you from some of those memories. Yeah. And the fact that it, you know, does it's, it's not permitting you to go there. And it actually detaches you from the environment. An experience that I think some people have had is that they literally might not see something in their home for a long time. It's sitting right there, but they might not see it. Yeah. Because it's actually a very, it would be a big trigger to dwell on it much. And so the mind can just in its way of trying to protect us, just keep us from seeing it. Just dissociate, yeah. yeah, which is- Yeah, and then like, you know, one day it could be months later, you, yeah. you, you look over and go, oh, that's been there all the time. What I appreciate about how you're talking about that, both that it's just a natural function and also just reminding us that that's a tool that our mind has to help us. I think there is an element of like denial or disassociation as having a negative consequence. And one of the things that you write about in your book is the the concept of intentionally allowing yourself to be distracted, that we don't have to be in the intensity of feeling at all times. And I imagine that's a little bit like the way we don't do physical therapy to recover at every moment. We've got to let there be some rest. I am remembering that section about restorative sleep, partly because sleep is still such an issue for me. I'm being reminded that some of those things we don't have control over, but also our body is, it's needing the distraction. It's needing the rest. It's needing the, it's not a bad thing to disassociate. It might be very protective. Well, you know, I, when I was writing the book, I had in mind that I was writing it for people who are going through very difficult times. Yeah. And so, you know, Parts of the book that, for example, the part that talks about, well, in some ways I tried to like, just focus right in and say, well, okay, how are you going to do this? And obviously one can't live in angst all the time. Right, right. So it is very important to plan, thoughtfully plan and schedule the times during your day and your week that you're going to do the so-called grief work. Yeah. To make those connections we talked about. And at the same time, to thoughtfully plan when you're going to have times for refreshment. Without emotional refreshment and emotional rejuvenation and calming, I don't think that you could ever succeed in the other difficult work. Yeah. Because 
the fact is you have to create a safe space for yourself yeah in order to be able to move forward emotionally and so you know for some people that is going to be as simple as getting out in nature you mm -hmm. know being going for a hike going bird watching you know it could be anything that makes you feel like it takes you offline and gets your mind to really calm down and probably during those moments is when some of those things like what you were talking about with your dad and trying to figure out the sequence of things and how it all rolled out some of us is starting to come back to the surface because your mind is being rested and calmed you know it's interesting because one of the things that people ask a lot is particularly about memory and whether or not memories will come back that they just have lost the entire day of you know they don't remember doing this or they don't remember doing that and obviously the answer you know is unique for everyone but it's interesting to hear you describe it that going and searching for the memories is not necessarily going to help you find the memories that some of this is about allowing the brain to do its own kind of restorative healing and that then maybe the the connections are reconnected and the memories will be there yeah well i mean i like use that as a good example of exactly what uh, we're talking about so say for example somebody a particular period of time that they specifically want to to reconnect with. So a way to do that, because those memories exist, yes. they may not be, you may not be able to reconnect yeah. them, but they, they, they exist. So um, a way to do that, let's using um, journaling, which is something that I know both of us have found therapeutic, one can sit down and the best you can begin to write out whatever memories you have from that period of time and then leave it yeah, and yeah. come back to it periodically. Don't obsess about it, but come back to it periodically. It could be the next day, the next week. And when you do, or the next month, and when you do, each time you read it, if you're also doing other practices that we're talking about to improve overall health, you know, physical health and mental health and emotional health, that each time you read it, it is very likely that it's going to trigger some additional new memories. And then you annotate your own writing because mm -hmm. then your own writing is going to trigger in you and go, oh yeah, and then this happened. Or now I remember some subtle detail that I didn't include before. So you annotate that and over and over, you can build back your memory yeah. over time. It may literally take months, it, even beyond a year. Well, I've been writing pieces of my memoir for a while. And there's, I think, probably the most profound period of time where I was really, really suffering was driving from my mother's house back to where we live in Washington, D.C. So this eight, hour, eight to 10 hour drive, which ended up taking 17 hours, because I kept trying to get out of the car and I didn't have concrete memories of that. I mean, my children were in the car. I was not in my right frame of mind and my husband was driving. I wasn't opening the door while we were going quickly. We were stuck in traffic, but I had just repeated panic 
while I was sort of moving, moving away from my mother and her funeral in her life. And the editor was like, listen, we get, we have to know how you get from here to here. You have to say something. And I was like, well, I, you know, it's not even that it's triggering me. I don't, I, I can tell you the story that I've been told from other people. And just recently, so this is coming up on two years. I just recently like 3d glasses where suddenly you can see an image where you wouldn't see them before. I have my own in my body memories of my hand on the door handle. I can see the traffic from my own eyes instead of someone else's description. And I have been able, just as you're describing, write that down. I hadn't thought about why that was the case. I just sort of thought, well, you know, my mind is trusting me with these, with pretty hard memories is trusting that I'm going to be okay to listen to them and have them again. But it's really interesting to hear that that's a process that you can kind of actively go and try to encourage because you're right. The memories are there. It's not like I wasn't there. I was there. I just didn't really have access to the. I mean, people, people are fond of, you know, using cliches like time heals all wounds. And, you know, as I've said, actually, I don't believe that time heals all wounds. I believe that time is very helpful. It's a very important contributory. It's an important component of healing. But without taking some of the steps we've been talking about, one can only get so far. Yeah. You know, I think that many people um, that I have come across who have gone through a serious loss, their impulse has been to distract themselves. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some pretty radical, dramatic examples of that to distract themselves, to stay incredibly busy, to distract themselves, to act impulsively, and so forth. For many of us, I think you know, how are we going to make meaning, as many researchers have said, how are we going to make meaning out of tragic events in our lives, traumatic events in our lives? You know, the only way to do that is to, if we're talking about losing a loved one, to honor the loved one by learning from that and growing from it. Yeah. And maybe building, you know, important things out of that, you know, as you are doing with your your website and your prod, your your writing and your blog and so forth. Without that, it feels hollow. Feel the experience feels hollow, and so I, I think that that's that's really. I very much uh, am a believer in the concept of post traumatic growth. Me too. Uh, and I, I think that it it can be a source of comfort over time. I would assume that you would get some comfort out of thinking that your mom and dad would be pleased to see how these difficult times have affected you overall. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I love the concept of post-traumatic growth. I think sometimes it's misinterpreted to mean like you start a cancer foundation and you know, you become an activist for whatever cause, you know, it w- is connected to the death. I love it in a more sort of smaller personal, maybe trauma therapy model, which is just that whatever the event is, that that doesn't end the experience of positivity around that person or that thing that you lost, right? There's all these modern grief and theories of dual processing and Warden's task of mourning and those sorts of 
ideas, essentially, that there is a there is a process in order to find ourselves on the other side. We're going to be totally different. And you say that many times in your book, and I'm so grateful for that, which is we're not trying to come out of a therapist's office and go back to the life that we had before. That life does not exist. There's no going back. There's no way to do that. But to also not have it only be my mom died and therefore my life is less. I don't believe that that honors the experience of loss for anyone in that way. So I'm not sure my mom would be super fired up because she was kind of private. I'm not sure she would love the fact that I was having such public conversations, but I think she would definitely completely understand as you and I both experienced the sort of jarring knowledge that even with all of my academic background, all of my degrees and all my many years of study, that the actual personal experience was profoundly shockingly different than what I expected. And that in that, I feel like I have a different way to voice ways that I can offer people support. That does feel like my traumatic growth. And I feel proud of that because it's been very hard. You know, it's very hard to recover any sort of sense of equilibrium or stability after your world stops spinning on its axis. I I think that we have to honor the individual nature of people's experiences and individual nature of people's personalities and hopes and drives for their own future. Mm. Uh, What I think we should encourage is that there isn't any one way of doing this. And instead that we're talking about something in an extremely general way that we want to uh, help people move from uh, a period of pain and dysfunction to a period of optimal function. And that these are ways to do it, but that we're also very different. Yes. That we're going to have to find our own way of doing that. That's right. You know, I can't even imagine how many different ways and that people would find how many different types of interventions will help different types of people Absolutely. Uh, based on their own talents you know how for somebody who has artistic skills the ability to dance the ability to do athletics photography music it goes on and on the ways in which people could find their own creative outlet to help them reconnect, make those connections that we're talking about. I can see that every one of those would be an incredible source of creativity to make those links between the cognitive and emotional components of memory. It could be done in so many ways. Yeah. So in so no way want to uh, make it sound that there's this a prescription of only one way to do things. It's instead a a construct or model that somebody can revise to suit themselves. Yeah. And it's very hopeful because exactly as you're describing, it means that there's a, a ton, a million zillion different ways that people can heal. And I think from a trauma perspective, that really is what we're trying to infuse is to say to people, we can't often or maybe even ever prevent the trauma from happening, but the meaning that we make on the other side through the efforts that we make to come to know ourselves 
are they're in they're indefinite they're forever and and as a trauma therapist part of what is really powerful is watching people do that they go places and do things that i would never prescribe or even know to think of it's very it's very humbling i am so grateful for this conversation i really am so grateful for your book i have already put it up on my instagram page and encouraged people to go and get it i mean not only because it's full of all of your neurologist perspective but it's also got recipes in there and beautiful stories of your relationship with your husband and encouraging journal prompts i mean it it really it's like a little book that is filled with all the nuggets of different pieces of what we know to be helpful in in encouraging people to integrate loss and and continue to move forward thank you thank you megan for your encouragement Uh, it just it's a beautiful i appreciate it and it's been a pleasure to be with you so thank you again dr shulman i'm so appreciative for this conversation it's really nice to meet you megan okay take care bye-bye can you even believe that episode dr shulman covered just everything I have ever wanted to know about what goes on in your brain, all the things I think that those of us who have done significant grieving were suspicious about, which is, of course, there is something real and biological that's going on. Her book is linked in the show notes. I happen to have a couple of extra, if folks would like one, go and put a positive review up on the Apple podcast review site and reference this particular episode and then go on to griefismysidehustle.com and send me an email. Just let me know that you reviewed the book and I'll send it to you. I think I have five copies. So first five people to do that, I'll send you the book. It's really good. I mean, we only just sort of dug into part of it. Thanks so much, everybody. We will be back next week with a new episode and there'll be an encore episode on Thursday. Quick reminder for all of those that asked, the music is my little brother, Brendan Reardon. It's not publicly available, even though folks have asked. It's not a full song. It's just something he wrote for me because, you know, your little brother owes you sometimes. Take care, everybody.